Our scripture, our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Psalm 62. But before we get to God's word, let us pray together. Oh God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that it is a living word to us. And so God, as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning, we ask that you would speak to us and that we would also have ears to listen and hearts to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assail a person... Will you batter your victim, all of you, as you would a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Their only plan is to bring down a person of prominence. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone my soul waits in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my deliverance and my honor. My mighty rock, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no confidence in extortion and set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And steadfast love belongs to you, O Lord, for you repay to all according to their work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you again to our property committee who is shepherding this painting process, our building fund, who's provided the funds to to see it happen. Uh, But all week long, I will tell you, folks have come through this office and said, oh, you got it you got to preach this sermon from the scaffolding. Go, go tell it on the scaffolding. That will be so memorable. But I'm not going to do that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the word will come among us from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 34. Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On Thursday morning, I shared breakfast at McLean's on Broad with Beth Balakey and some of our members of this congregation's endowment fund. 
Beth is a missionary, many of you know, uh, with Scripture Union Uganda, and maybe also, as many of you know, the Endowment Fund has supported her ministry for a number of years. We're having breakfast, and she shares this story about her, her missionary work in Uganda, and she uh, at one point finds a, a place to live. It's in a somewhat dangerous part of town, and nothing happens to her, but she decides she really should move to maybe a little safer part of town, a little closer, actually, to some of the uh, mission work they had going on there. And of course, not long after moving to that safer neighborhood, it's then that someone breaks in and robs the place. And she leans back as she's telling this story. She puts her hands in the air and she goes, and so I say to God, oh, I must stop moving all around and just trust you. That was the prayer she started to pray after that move. And I thought, what, what a great prayer. I must stop moving all around and just trust you. In many ways, that sentiment runs to the heart of Psalm 62. The psalmist is obviously speaking in the middle of a troubling time. How long will you assail a person? Will you batter a victim, all of you people, as you would a leaning wall, a a tottering fence? Some group of people are attacking this psalmist and, and, and battering this person. And what's the weapon of choice? Verse 4 reads, Their only plan is to bring down a person of prominence. They take pleasure in falsehood. Words are their hammers. Words are their sword. Words are their battering ram. And with their words, they spread lies about the psalmist. And worse, verse 4 says, it goes on to say that these people, when they speak, they bless with their mouths. But inwardly, they curse. Theirs is not an overt attack of raging evil. No, their words seem to bless. Their words seem sweet. Their words seem good. Their words seem right. But actually, they're coming from a place of cursing. They're coming from a place that seeks to hurt, to batter, to topple. One commentator speaks of this group of folks as a, as quote, reputation wreckers, as they take down the good name of this person. And whatever words they're using, whatever lies they're using, whatever gossip they're spreading, they seem to know the power of words because the psalmist describes his attackers as approaching approaching him like they would a leaning wall that's about to fall or a a toppling fence that's about to totter. Just, Just a few more words. And he's down. I think one of the most fearful things about false words, gossip words said about you or to you or around you, is that you can't control what's being said. I mean, once it's said, once it's written, it it spreads, it takes on a life of its own beyond anyone's controlling. And there's something terrifying about that if it's not true. I mean, when have you known the pain of words or stories or assertions about you that were actually false or, or, or Or they really didn't know nearly the half of the story. Or about your business. Or your family. I mean, have you ever known untrue words to spread widely? Maybe even deeply. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark, the book of James observes. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. And of course, when words are directed at us or about us or around us or, or, or our people or, or the things that interest us, the most natural thing in the world to do is try and control this wildfire. Many of you know about and, and probably use the online review platform Yelp. 
They have this massive business they've created harnessing the wildfire-like power of words. I think of how many restaurants I've been to in the last two, three years where maybe they've got a line on the menu or somewhere in the restaurant and it reads, did you like the food? Was the service good? Review us on Yelp. Could we have done better? Just come and tell us directly. If it's good, get it out there. But if it's all bad, if it's at all bad, just just tell us. Because we want right to keep some control over how far and wide the words go. Because words can batter. Words can topple. We want to limit the damage. And, And that really is a somewhat benign way of controlling the wildfire of words. More typically, when the words start hammering, we hammer back. Directly or indirectly, through a strongly worded post or, or behind-the-scene gossip, we use words. And to be sure, there is a time and a place for a word. But James, the book of James also cautions, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Perhaps James had read Psalm 62 and observe how the psalmist situates himself in the midst of these hammering words. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress, and I shall never be shaken. And and then nearly those exact same words repeat again in verses 5 and six. Amid the hammering of words, the gossip and the slandering, the lies pulling down the reputation, there is neither fight nor flight with the psalmist. He speaks instead of being situated on solid rock. He speaks of being situated in a fortress. In that time, a large structure with, with high walls behind which a person would have had every provision they need for living. But how? I mean, how does he know himself situated so sublimely, so anchored, when the hammers are obviously loud, obviously pounding, obviously bad? Some of you have been to uh, Richmond Hill. It's a Christian ecumenical retreat center located at the highest, over in Church Hill, on the, really the highest hill of Richmond overlooking the city. And if you take a bus that way or, or you, you drive that way, you go through the heart of downtown Richmond and it's busy and it's noisy. And then you come to Richmond Hill and there are these large brick walls that, that surround Richmond Hill and you, and you walk through. And even though you are decidedly at the heart of the city's busyness and, and commotion, the thing you notice most when you walk into this retreat center is the quality of quietude. It's stunning, the simple chapel there and then the adjacent garden. One can sit on any number of chairs or benches under this canvas of large trees and and this beautiful floral arrangement and you can stare upon the city and the river. I've gone there from time to time to sit and listen, to pray, to journal, to read. And I cherish it each time because there is something about the silence situated directly in the midst of the busyness and the commotion that ministers to me the peace of Jesus Christ that transcends all understanding. It's not a peace removed from the noise. It's not a peace found by controlling all the noise. It's a peace birthed right amidst the noise, right amidst the battering chaos without and within.
For God alone my soul waits in silence. Silence is the conduit of the psalmist's remarkable trust. Richard Foster considers silence, quote, one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit. And he goes on to explain the reason it's one of the deepest disciplines is because silence puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. In silence, we find we don't need to control the situation with still more words, still more noise, It's not that a word doesn't eventually sometimes need to be spoken in in a certain way, in truth and in love, Paul tells us. It's just that in silence we discover again a profound trust in God who will save, God who will deliver. And we discover that we are in fact in this very God with whom we are fortified with our every needful provision. In our age of ceaseless words, our age of angry words, false words, misconstrued words, lacking in nuanced words, bumper stickers, slogans, texts, and tweets, it can be so destabilizing, so anxiety-producing, so forest fire-inducing all of the time. And yet I wonder if so many of those words are not expressions of people trying to grasp a semblance of peace by way of control. What would it look like for the church to witness to a different peace? What would it look like for the church to cede control to the one with, quote, all power and steadfast love, as the psalmist puts it? I mean, if we know that in any relationship, if any relationship can go further and faster if it has trust, what does it look like for the church to know an absolute and full trust in Jesus? Tomorrow begins my 14-week sabbatical, and let me again say, say thank you. It is a remarkable gift that you all have given me to take space to know God's renewing strength and nourishment and refreshment this summer. I feel myself going into it like the psalmist in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, because truly I am eager to know afresh the living water of God's goodness and nourishment. And I'm also eager for the same for each of you. It's my hope in the coming weeks this will be something of a sabbatical, truly, for the congregation. A space in which you can uniquely slow and receive the nourishing strength of God. It is one of the reasons that Esther, along with uh, Reverend Nelson Reevely, uh, are leading you through a sermon series on the Psalms. That's why I preach, I'm preaching on a psalm today. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. The Psalms are the prayers that have undergirded some of the most active and and faithful saints throughout the generations. And it's one of the reasons that during the sabbatical I am inviting each of you to join with me in praying one psalm a day. Tomorrow is day one of the sabbatical. And so Psalm 1 is the psalm to be prayed for that day. And then day 2 will be Psalm 2. Day 3, Psalm 3. Each morning, any of you who are on our our general email list, you're going to receive an email with that day's psalm. Each week in worship, you'll have the bulletin with an update about where we are in the, in the praying through of the Psalms like you have today. It's this week's printed in there. And hopefully all of that helps, but, but, but that is all just reminders and logistics. The question is this, what would it look like for you this summer to commit to a special prayerful silence with these Psalms? 
each day. Maybe you could take a trip or two to Richmond Hill. Absolutely, all are welcome. They do half and full day retreats for a very small donation. But then day to day, how could you imagine yourself listening in silence for the living voice of God through these psalms? Maybe you're a morning person, a lunchtime person, an evening person. Maybe you're more inclined to read the psalm and have a few moments of quiet reflection. Maybe you prefer to journal because you know that's how you actually listen best. Maybe you, you paint or you color in response to the psalm. Maybe it's a family activity for you, the Saturday psalm in watercolors. Maybe you prefer to listen audibly to the psalm in your car or in home. But, but bottom line, what, what would it look like in this sabbatical summer to glimpse the gift God gives in silence? And what might be raised among us when we cede control and give ourselves utterly unto the God of resurrection? I mean, that's why I love where the psalm continues to go from here. It's like after this extended reflection on silence, he looks back up at the gathered people of God in verse 8 and declares all that he's discovered in the space of trust. And he says, trust him all times, O people. And then he says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. Put no confidence in money, even if you get a lot of it. The psalmist seems to say a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit where we were just talking about for a while. Why is he suddenly speaking of people of high estate, low estate? When did the issues of robbery and having a lot of money come up? I think that's part of the gift of being nourished in the fortress of God for an extended period of time. In silence... The psalmist has received the peace and presence of God and nourished there. He is raised to a new God awareness about his situation and he sees further and deeper than he could ever have seen had he just joined in hammering back at the words. From the fortress of God, he starts to notice that, you know, even if it's lofty people of high estate, power, and reputation whose words are tearing him down, or maybe it's people of low estate who have nothing to lose who are tearing him down, they are each but a breath. This will not last. Their falsehood is weightless, ultimately, before God. From the fortress of God, he also noticed that when the hammers are out and things are anxious and worrisome, it seems that a whole lot of people become certain that if they just could win the lottery or an inheritance came their way or a bequest or two came to the church, we'd all be on a lot more solid footing. We'd have some peace. We'd have some reason for hope. And the psalmist is like, let me tell you what I know from the silence. I'm telling you. One learns afresh that riches are not the savior. They're not even the stabilizer. It's really, it's truly, it's only, it's fully God. One of my hopes for this summer is that we find not only space to know a renewing strength and vitalization and peace in God. But also like the psalmist, we have testimonies that share what God is teaching us. Showing us that really you can only get in that sustained place with God. And who knows which direction God might point lead. That's one reason in September uh, when I'm back, we're going to have three Sunday schools uh, dedicated to sharing stories from the sabbatical. September 15th, 22nd, 29th. Two of those Sundays I'll be sharing some stories about what God has been showing me. And, and one of those Sunday, the 29th, some of you will be sharing stories about what God's been teaching or showing you. I don't have anyone set up for the 29th yet because I just want to see what God raises. 
But it all begins tomorrow. And maybe the simplest way to summarize the summer prayer is this. I must stop moving all around and just trust you. It is not a prayer that calls the church to sort of a motionless escapism. No, God has important and big works for us yet to do. But rather it's a prayer about our proclivity for racing around with our words and our lives, trying to get control, trying to get safe. It's a prayer offered with raised arms and open hands because it's truly a prayer of letting go. It's in a prayer that in some ways echoes Jesus' prayer on the eve of crucifixion, not my will, but thy will be done. Because right shortly after their words batter him and hammers batter him. And he enters into the deepest silence of all. And there too, there especially, is the God of all power and steadfast love. And three days later, he is risen from the depth of silence. May a new rising be birthed among us as we offer that wise prayer. I must stop moving around and just trust you. Amen.